Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for today's SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and today on the Roundup, we're going to be covering three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last seven days. Before we get to those questions, I do want to give a special shout out to those watching live here on Facebook uh, and those taking the time to watch on repeat either on Facebook or our YouTube channel, and also those who make a conscious effort to download our podcast subscribing to it and listening to our words each week on our three different topics that we cover and hope to answer to provide some insight for you in your uh, daily work. So let's get to it. As you know, each week we take a look at the news stories of the week that have come down in international education and social media, and we look at uh, ways that uh, potentially we see themes developing in some of these news stories and that how that might be shaped. Uh, to, uh, to provide some insight onto these topics uh, that can help you do your jobs better. And we provide that new in a newsletter form each week on Monday mornings at 9 a.m. in a newsletter called All the SMIE News Fit to Share. That stands for Social Media and International Ed News. We usually have five to six social media stories, uh, 20 to 30 international education stories each week that we highlight in different topic areas and we see themes developing and we present three of those topics uh, on Wednesdays for our live chats here on Facebook for the Midweek Roundup. Uh, so if you haven't already subscribed, I certainly recommend doing so. Uh, you can get the, a free subscription at smieconsulting.org slash subscribe. I just enter your email address and some other details and we'll get, that, uh, get you added to that mailing list for the weekly newsletter. Uh, but today, let's get right to it. It's Wednesday, March 3rd. Uh, the Biden administration has been in office for a little over six weeks now, uh, and we're coming to a, a point in our time uh, with where we, where we see some signs that things might be changing in a more positive directions. We've seen some data from Common App that shows that international applications are up, aside from China, where they're down considerably still. Uh, do we see other areas of uh, life in terms of the government's attitude towards international changing? Uh, certainly seems to be uh, that way, and we're going to talk about that in our first question of the day. And how should we encourage international students about study options in the United States? Uh, what policies, and we've talked in the last couple of weeks about some of the immigration plans that the administration has and some of the components that will impact international education in a positive way. Uh, what we're also going to talk about today is uh, the way we talk about international education here in the U.S., uh, what we can be doing, uh, and two very clear ways that uh, we can make a difference as a, as, a, as a country and as international educators in how we talk about uh, students themselves. So let's get right to it. First up is a, actually a Forbes article. Uh, that covers the topic uh, related to uh, uh, words that are used uh, to uh, talk about international uh, students, immigrants to the United States, all of that. Uh, I think it's, it seems like a pretty basic one and a, maybe even a simplistic one, but the impact of such a move, I think, uh, by the Biden administration this week to uh, change the way we talk as a, as a nation in terms of, uh, from the government level in particular, about, uh, about people who are here in the United States uh, without documents, uh, that, uh, who are 
had previously been called aliens or illegals. Uh, or I think illegals had gone out uh, within the last 10 years and was replaced by undocumented. Now, even undocumented might not be appropriate or not. We're calling them non-citizens. Uh, that's something, uh, the language uh, and the approach taken by the administration certainly softens the way we talk about that. And uh, aliens always seem to be a very uh, unusual choice to talk about those that are not uh, citizens of the United States or permanent residents. I was an alien here in the United States at one point. I was a resident alien, which is another interesting term. Uh, before I became a citizen. Uh, this is something that we, uh, when you think about the way we, uh, we talk about uh, each other, uh, our language has changed uh, in how we reference uh, certainly uh, different ethnicities, uh, changed as we have become more um, user-friendly, frankly, in terms of our language choices. And I think this is a step in that direction uh, when it comes to immigrants and uh, those that are coming here for a temporary temporary periods of time for study or other purposes, and how wh what the words we use do matter, and I think that was my point this week in uh, in the post that I've, uh, that I've I've seen a lot of tra traction on on uh, various platforms in terms of response from audience members, and uh, that seems to be the uh, lion's share of agreement that hey we have words do matter, and how we talk about. Uh, as a government and officially as a government talking about uh, future immigrants, uh, future students coming to this country as, um, as aliens, as uh, illegals and illegal aliens, those types of things, that language is going away as far as government speak goes. And that's, that's a good thing. And I think that matters, uh, particularly for overseas audiences that when they learn, learn the meaning of a word in English, uh, uh, whether something is or someone is uh, a particular category like an alien, does that really, um, uh, when they think of alien, they don't think of uh, someone who's come to another country. They think of someone from another planet. And that's almost the way it seems we have treated uh, international uh, students in the past, uh, we've, how we've certainly treated uh, potential immigrants from certain countries in the past by the previous administration. That was that, it was like they were coming from a different planet. So I think this language change matters, and I think it's, it certainly is more of an encouragement when we talk, uh, talk about people as uh, non-citizens uh, or, uh, or uh, language that is certainly much more friendly. So the, uh, if you have a subscription to Forbes, you'd be able to see that. But I, I, if you don't, you won't be able to read it, unfortunately. But it, it, I think it's a policy move by the government that does make a lot of sense, uh, and certainly ones that presents a kinder a gentler face to uh, U.S. as a welcoming destination for international students. So certainly wasn't one of the things that was front and front of the administration's talking points and how they were going to view uh, uh, immigration issues, but certainly it's a welcome one. I think we've, we, can all, we would all agree that in our field uh, that for too many years the way the government has labeled uh, people has, uh, from overseas that would be coming to the U.S., uh, doesn't really present the best image. So the way we can talk about them now is in a much in a much more uh, user-friendly way, certainly uh, one that establishes uh, a better, I think, welcoming approach uh, and welcoming language for these prospective students. The other side of this coin is other th a question of how, how should we encourage international students. And I think the uh, this, this is an opinion piece in The Insider, Business Insider magazine, a news, news outlet really, 
uh, that uh, talks about the how international students uh, should be granted more visas to study here. And of course, all of us in international international ed said amen, and they. Uh, uh, we all agree that uh, yes, more more visas, uh, certainly um, a, a streamlined visa process, a visa process that potentially, uh, if immigration regulations uh, or recent regula uh, legislation gets approved, to make international students F in F1 status dual intent, that would have a significant impact. And I think uh, we would all uh, be supportive of that. And uh, the, the person writing this article uh, is uh, Christopher Richardson. Uh, he's a former, um, excuse me, a former consular officer uh, who, and that's one of the first jobs you get as a consular officer on your first assignments overseas is to be a visa officer uh, where you're, you're, you spend eight to 10 hours a day doing visa appointments. Uh, it's the real grunt work of the Foreign Service Corps in terms of um, what uh, not everybody looks forward to, but certainly something everyone needs to do uh, because it's very much presenting that public face to the about the U.S. before these uh, potential immigrants, non-immigrants uh, come to the United States. They are meeting with a U.S. official and when they go to an embassy or consulate and have that visa interview. And this uh, former consular officer talks about his time at State Department and how he interviewed thousands of international students who wanted to study at some of the best universities in the U.S. and they were some of the most smartest and most successful uh, students in their countries. Uh, that uh, uh, in many in future in countries that the former president uh, used very derogatory language regarding their countries. Uh, that. Uh, also talked, uh, talks about the Muslim, Muslim ban and the negative impact that had and four straight years of decline in student visa applications as a result uh, where, and that also leading to our competitors, Canada Australia, saw their numbers uh, increase. So he makes the argument that good visa policy is common sense and that it is part of foreign policy and how you approach the world. And uh, part of uh, the Biden administration inaugural address says America is back uh, we are uh, back engaging in the world. Uh, we are. We know damage has been done. We're going to do what we can to repair that damage, repair relationships, uh, rebuild alliances uh, over the next four years, and that's certainly something that um, it has. It's the. It is part of the soft diplomacy that we have and we use in the U.S. in our in terms of our higher education, much like China has done in a, in a different way with their Belt and Road Initiative, soft power initiatives to, designed to curry favor with foreign governments to allow uh, better relations with, with, um, with the country that's uh, providing the largesse. We, don't, we do that, we have foreign aid and we're largest provider of foreign aid in the world, but we, um, we, it isn't an expectation that we have these students come, but certainly it's something we encourage. Uh, in the past, we've, we've done much more uh, than we did in the last four years to encourage it, and I think we're going to do much more in the next four years to encourage it. So the, the, the type of, uh, he, this consular officer makes the point that it's, it's a very complicated process, and he, he, he says, and quoting him here, to even schedule an appointment requires a visa applicant to work through three to five different websites. Applicants must often trek hours or even days across their country to a U.S. embassy or consulate for an in-person interview. After being searched and fingerprinted in a heavily armed atmosphere, applicants interview with visa officers, such as myself, behind bulletproof glass window for only a few minutes. 
There's often no privacy as applicants answer personal questions about their plans, income, criminal history, and family ties to their native country. Often, cases are placed in administrative processing in which the applicant can be pending for years without explanation. And that's, and that's not, uh, that's just the student experience. Uh, he says, on, uh, and provides some insight into the process. I think that's, that's helpful for, our, for international educators to see. We, uh, those who have traveled abroad in the past and have visited consulates and embassies and met with these folks uh, who do the interviews, you kind of get a sense of what their days are like if you've asked the questions. But he goes on to explain uh, the, 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 the process on his side uh, as a consular officer. Officers in general, again, in general are drawn from the U.S. Diplomatic Corps. When they joined Foreign Service, most had dreams of being George Kennan, but instead they ended up on the line, where they expected to interview as many 100, as 120 visa applicants a day. And officers have little time to analyze applicants beyond anything but gut instinct, and that gut often leads them to deny credible applicants. So this is... Uh, <laughs> Former consul, our current consul officer, who's admitted this, their guts tell them to deny. They they often deny credible uh, credible applicants, and it's an antiquated system. He goes on to say that is rooted in post 9/11 security buildup. Uh, that uh, sadly, the arrogance of the of those in government who believe that America is so appealing that we can treat visa applicants any way we wish without repercussions, and that is. That's, that's, that's it. Immigration policy that relies on gut judgments from predominantly white visa officers uh, and government officials who are, uh, believe that America is so appealing. Uh, and that's certainly uh, proving to be less, less true. Uh, while we may still be appealing, that we certainly should not be treating visa applicants uh, any way we wish without repercussions. And that's certainly those are, there are negative stories. You hear about bad experiences with consular officers and that can put off future students, but the desire to study here is so great. Uh, we don't capitalize on that, frankly, enough, um, particularly in, in, the, in the visa offices. And I think he's making the case here that that certainly is not what happens uh, at posts around the world. Uh, this, uh, the lack of international travel uh, for much of this year, uh, is, uh, which we are gonna see even though we might ha all have v uh, vaccinations here in the United States by May, enough as President Biden said yesterday. Uh, that uh, doesn't mean international travel is all of a sudden opened up uh, because we're still, as a country, coming to grips with how to deal with this, though we'll have the vaccinations. Other countries won't, and it may be, may be months before they do. Um, it's a very significant minority of Western, Western countries, Westernized countries, highly developed economy, that have uh, or are, have rolled out very significant vaccination programs yet. So we're still months off before we see, probably 2022 20, before we see significant travel resume, maybe longer. Uh, that his recommendation here is improving the pre-interview process, uh, pre-appointment process. Uh, and that uh, is, is, is certainly something that is, compared to our competitors is uh, much more complicated process in the U.S. Uh, second, uh, he says we should seek ways to permit student visa applicants to renew their visas while in the U.S. so they don't have to return home in the middle of their studies. Third, we should create an empowered ombudsman office to elevate systemic and individual visa issues where, when merited. And those are things that, yeah, we'd all love that. 
uh, NAFSA has ombudsmans that are, uh, deal with these uh, kind of relationships with states and with uh, uh, with folks at, folks there or D DHS if it's more uh, current student issues. But uh, there's also a lot of red tape with the State Department. He advises uh, cutting back on that. Uh, that cr the, the processes that com that uh, create unnecessary administrative processing backlogs, uh, being more transparent to applicants as to why they're placed in administrative processing in the first place. So to, have to put your life on hold for a year because you're waiting on the decision that you don't know why you're waiting on the decision, just other than it's administrative processing, uh, that the administration should uh, is uh, one of the obviously dollars make a difference here uh, that that there should be increased uh, by he makes the case Biden administration should work with Congress to secure more funding for State Department so they can expand visa interview waivers uh, invest in remote visa interview technology like uh, testing companies have been able to do it uh, by having at home versions of their exams uh, and provide better training for officers. Uh, th there's a lot that's going on here, and he's making some fantastic points. I, I have uh, uh, dear friends, uh, lifelong friends that have worked in, in uh, as foreign officers and have been on that front line uh, as cons uh, visa officers, and they share similar stories in, in terms of, yeah, it's grunt work, it's not the most, uh, oftentimes it, we're just, uh, the, the bureaucracy is just overwhelming in terms of what, why we have to do what we do and some of the, initial hurdles that students have to clear, like the immigrant intent piece, is are so significant that when we can't give a visa and are, are using our guts, uh, gut instincts to make decisions, oftentimes those might not be the best decisions. And uh, it doesn't take into consideration bigger picture issues. So really encouraged to see that kind of an article. And yes, we should all be granting, we should be granting more visas to international students. We should be making the visa process simpler. Uh, certainly it is uh, with, um, with many of our competitors. So uh, a lot of good, good recommendations in there, and I certainly uh, recommend all uh, t taking a quick read on that article. Now, next up, uh, what role can social media play in recruitment? And this is something that's a near and dear to my heart because uh, it's an area that uh, it's been around now for uh, 2005, 2006, when it first social media first hit the scene in terms of on campus in the United States and then growing dramatically uh, around the world, certainly during my time in uh, Education USA from 2008 to 2014, social media just exploded globally, not just in the United States, and at different rates in different countries and different platforms and, uh, being more popular than others. But being aware of that and leveraging that is, has always been a challenge, I think, for U.S. institutions. And how, but to show you how simple it can be, uh, and I reference this in one of my uh, news articles this week that I po posted out uh, on for the newsletter uh, is a simple thing. Uh, this is a, uh, a video from Pasadena City, City College from one of their uh, Korean students done in Korean uh, with English uh, slides. It's basically recording a Zoom meeting he did uh, and that it's been repurposed for, for social. They probably did a live event and he did it for prospective students. It's uh, seven, a little over seven minutes, and it goes through his experiences uh, going to, uh, uh, for uh, talking about Pasadena City College, uh, his experiences, uh, what he's doing now, that type of thing. So he, uh, it's all, all in Korean, the slides are, are, are English, but it, I think it's a very interesting 
uh, interesting take on what's, uh, what our institution can do to reach students, targeted students, in key areas. Uh, again, this was done, probably done live, but it was placed on uh, by um, Education USA, or it was targeting through Education USA Korea uh, students in that country, obviously. And this uh, was the video was actually released uh, through Education USA Korea. Uh, but it's, it really talks through some of the important um, examples of what it, what it, how something, something so simple. Uh, can be that might have been done live and attracted certain students on the day has life well beyond that, and it's uh, it's had 167 views. Again, we're talking about targeted audience here in Korea uh, that are hearing this uh, student talk about his experiences in uh, the application process, maybe working with uh, Education USA Korea as he was applying, all throughout that process, talking about Pasadena City College. All of this is something I think we really need to pay attention to as we are putting together our recruitment plans. Uh, this is social media is how our students, prospective students, uh, live their lives on their mobile devices uh, and how our current students certainly do. Might be different platforms but that's that's part of the part of the role of using social media on appropriate platforms to meet prospective students in their native language using current students. And this is this is something that ties together as we've been talking about the six P's of international enrollment management, strategic international enrollment management over the last uh, few weeks. We'll keep on talking about that for the next few months. But it's, a, it's my model that I've developed that uh, talks about the importance of perspective, of planning, of platform choice, of peers, and of personalization uh, in how you do what you do. Uh, and this is something, and uh, this is something that I think a lot of institutions know they need to do, but don't ever commit the resources to doing it, the time and effort of having a current student do a presentation like this to, a to an advising center. Even if they only have five students that attend the live session, you can repurpose this and should repurpose this kind of content across platforms because it can have a, a value add beyond the initial event and will always have a value add if you know how to use it and where to leverage it. And that's, that's part of the challenge is, is knowing where you need to be and living where your audiences live, which I always talk about too. And we talk about this um, in, a new, in a new scheme of how uh, institutions in this um, uh, uh, time in our, in our history when uh, race issues have bubbled to the surface and, and have been receiving, rightly so, a lot of public attention uh, in terms of how we, how we message, how we talk about ourselves, uh, immigration issues uh, that have been largely uh, front and center for the last few four, four or five years, uh, and how those, those messages are talked about in wider circles in the, in the world, in student communities that we may or may not be tapped into. It's important that our messaging, though we, uh, we are sensitive to what other people are concerned about. And that's always kind of marketing 101 is talking about issues that, uh, using issues that student, that your audiences have and care about and talking about how you are addressing some of these uh, issues, social issues of our day. Uh, and using, in this case, social media to get that message across. Great article by Net Natives that I'll be posting the link to on the Facebook page, it was also in the newsletter this week, that talks about uh, the kind of steps you need to take and the importance of awareness of what you're doing to um, 
uh, of where, what you're doing in, uh, to address certain issues, uh, social issues of the day, uh, that trade that in, the awareness that you, that you have there, for, that becomes acceptance uh, for who you are as a brand, as an institution. And it's something that I think uh, the more institutions that do this as part of the regular programming, it's not going to be talking about your admissions process. It's not going to be talking about scholarships on your campus. It's not going to be uh, always uh, touting mission and values of the institution uh, unless it's, again, particularly in this case, where, when you can tie mission and values of an institution to how will you address social issues of the day on your campus, using that as kind of the color commentary for what your, um, what your institution is all about and how you put your words into action uh, and make it, make it something that is showing your campus's um, uh, awareness of issues but also acceptance that these are, these are things that we need to be talking about as, as an educational institution. So this article from Net Natives talks about uh, create, curating your own creators. Uh, where all the big brand, uh, brands on Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, Pinterest, whatever it might be, have curated teams of creators that they are uh, encouraging to create unique original content. Uh, for institutions, this means using your current students to help address the issues of the day on the platforms that your future students and future uh, potential audiences are on. And that means allowing them the freedom to address the issues on how your campus is talking about uh, race on campus, how your uh, college uh, handles issues of the day uh, with, as we're in the middle of a pandemic, pandemic safety, uh, that kind of thing that's uh, using your current students is using those peers again, uh, as, we're, as we just alluded to, how important that is in the overall mix. Uh, and let it be organic, frankly, uh, and try to, even though you have, you want to be micromanaging some of the comments and all that, let, it, let the conversation develop. Uh, don't feel like you have to be engaged in absolutely every comment. Uh, and it's important to use storytelling in this process and having a presence uh, uh, that, and talking about issues of the day and allowing your students to talk about your institution and how your institution is, is meeting, those, meeting those needs or uh, addressing those issues of the day. I think that's, that's a way social media can really be a powerful force in getting your message across. Not just of the end goal of enrolling those students, but what your institution stands for, uh, what, your, what you prioritize and what you are looking for in future students who uh, are maybe looking at your campus, uh, those that have uh, that kind of broader perspective and are, are inclusive and engaging in every, every, with, with the communi different communities that exist on your campus. Communities that in their home countries many of these students might not know anything about, but it's making them aware of what, what, what is going on on campus. And that's never a bad thing, uh, frankly, to, to be open and honest with your prospective audiences. Now, final story today is we're going to shift gears, go across the Atlantic to uh, an article uh, from The Boar uh, out of the UK uh, that is entitled COVID Recession May Force Universities to Cut Overseas Fees. Now this is something that's interesting. This is, um, we, we talked, uh, and certainly last fall, uh, the UK was seen as probably the biggest winner uh, in, the, uh, in a pandemic-filled year in terms of enrollments, uh, admission rates, that type of thing. Uh, even though they have struggled in the UK, uh, perhaps not quite as badly as we had early on in the pandemic with managing it 
and getting things under control and uh, keeping um, rates down. They had their own, own struggles there in the UK and still are to some extent, but vaccinations roll, rolling out pretty quickly there, uh, more so there than in other places in Europe. And what's, uh, what's happened in the UK is uh, they've been seen as a winner. Why? Because they kept their borders open, their visa processing systems did not, uh, did not shut down com nearly completely like they did in the United States, where 90% of our visa consulates and, and embassies were uh, closed for student visa appointments uh, up through August and September, when, which are peak season times for students to become in the US, other than a few emergency appointment only places. So there, that was a problem we had in the U.S. Uh, uh, we, we still were able to take in students, though, uh, not in the numbers that we were expected, down 43% this, this past fall. But the U.K. kept their borders open for the most part, had visa systems still running, and as a result, their enrollments were much better than expected this fall. Uh, now, part of that reasoning is the competitors. You look at what happened in Australia. They're still closed uh, and are likely to be closed to new internationals for much of 2021. So that will be almost two academic years that new international students haven't been able to enroll physically. Returning students who were locked out of the country, many of them haven't been able to return either. New Zealand, same, same deal. Uh, we're talking the end of 2021 before new international students can return new or returning to New Zealand. China, same way. But for Australia and New Zealand, as prime com competitors for the UK, US, Canada, they have certainly suffered. Uh, Canada has suffered too. Uh, they, after, Mar uh, after March, uh, they would not let anyone new into the country uh, who didn't have a visa that was issued beforehand or, or study permit for Canada. Uh, they then changed that to uh, to allow for, uh, to make it actually a little bit more strict than even the U.S. had that, or that if your if your campus did not require you to be physically in, in Canada, you did not you, you would not be let in even if you had a valid visa. So uh, Canada has taken a hit. They've reopened and had uh, visas available since October, study permits available since October but only if their institutions had submitted uh, COVID readiness plans that were then approved by the government. So that was a slower process uh, that got bogged down in bureaucracy and prevented a lot of institutions enrolling numbers in the late fall, early spring. Uh, that seems to be of, of ameliorated, but and there seems to be moves uh, to being much more open for by the time the next academic year starts in, in August, September. But within the UK, they're talking about issues where uh, this, they had a window this, year, this past year uh, because of what happened in Australia uh, and New Zealand, other countries that had limited intakes, uh, that as a result to remain attractive and competitive with these, their peer countries internationally, they're going to need to think about cutting overseas fees. They're already dealing with this somewhat when they're, when they're talking about EU students uh, who previously had kind of home state Home, uh, home tuition rates uh, that uh, UK students paid, EU students paid, but that's no longer the case. So there's a potential group of uh, EU students that might not be looking at the U UK anymore because of the increased price. Uh, so, so many UK universities are looking at schemes to uh, provide what we would do in the US, kind of an out-of-state tuition waiver uh, to that difference between in-state and out-of-state or uh, home fees and non-home fees uh, to have scholarships in place to uh, still attract students from the EU that, they, that many UK institutions depend on. Uh, so that's, that's already in play for some UK universities. And now on top of it, 
this this uh, this expert here is indicating that they they will need to look at different models that allow students to do a couple a year in their home country uh, through transnational education perhaps or, and then come to the home to home campus uh, to finish the program. Uh, it might be something where they have to reduce fees uh, to stay competitive to attract students uh, from, that might have been looking at Australia or New Zealand or even the U.S. or Canada in order to, to keep them interest to keep them coming to the U.K. So again, this all goes to the perspective issue that I've talked about for the last few months about how important it is for U.S. institutions to be aware of what's going on in other countries because, as this article points out, uh, it's very what institutions should be driven by is very much an awareness of how competitive or not they will be in future months when it comes to student intakes. So a lot to digest, obviously, this week. Thanks for bearing with us on the Roundup. It's always a pleasure to be having these conversations with you, and we look forward to chatting with you again in the weeks and months to come. So have a wonderful day. Cheers.